that was a big accomplishment. That was a big deal. For me and for my band, you know, we've been out here playing shows in New York for a long time, uh, from the bitter end and mm. from like really small venues. So when you say the bitter end, you mean like the big bitter end on Bleecker Street, the correct? Club, yeah, correct, yeah. correct. Yeah. yeah, like I used to, I had a residency there in 2014 and played with a lot of the same people for many shows that summer that were then on stage with me at Radio City. So it was, um, it was a very, I think, sentimental feeling, like you know, just kind of playing one of the biggest venues in the city with people that really have been part of my project for years. That's kind of the funny thing about coming up through New York is like, you're like, oh, you know, we played small venues like the bitter end, but that's, that's where like Springsteen used to play. Right. I mean, well, it's, yeah, it's still this like super crazy iconic club. It is. And I think, I think it, you know, I think it was, I love the bitter end. Yeah. And yeah, a lot of people did play at it. Like, um, thanks Springsteen. And I think like in the seventies and eighties, a lot of like iconic rock people were there and Lady Gaga used to play there mm. when she was at NYU. How surreal was Radio City? Radio City was very surreal. Very. Like, you know, you're in Midtown, you take the train, I took the D train <laughs> to, from my house in Harlem mm-hmm. to 48th or whatever it is. And I get out and I walk there and I'm like, oh, now I'm going in the security door for Radio City and I've seen it walk past it so many times, you know, the, the iconic like Radio City sign. And then we're in there and then there's all these security and it's like, okay, support gra- dressing room is on the fourth floor. So I'm going to the fourth <laughs> floor and like there's this huge dressing room that's just for the support. They have flowers for me. Welcome to Radio City. And that was awesome and deep and crazy. And then like soundcheck we're on stage and you just look out on stage and it's very, very, very big. And it's just crazy to be up there looking out i get a lot of people telling me like oh you know it doesn't doesn't matter if there's five people in the audience or 500 people audience in the audience which you know i sort of i appreciate the sentiment but i don't know if if i really buy it for me it's different yeah it is different it's different energies i feel like when there's so many people which this tour was definitely by far the biggest audience i've ever Mm -hmm. played for like every night we were playing for four five six seven thousand people um there's something almost less intimate there's mm, something more sure. – it's just like me and this vast – You literally – like you probably can't see anybody. You can see people on the front okay. and that's kind of it. Yeah. And so there is something where it's just like, okay, well, as opposed to, you know, coming here and doing an office performance mm-hmm. and it's like we're doing an acoustic strip-down thing for the 10 people in the office and they're all there and they're all like – you know, <laughs> arms folded, watching us. Yeah. There's something almost more pre- more high pressure about that. Um, yeah. But if you're doing an office, I assume, you know, if you're doing an office performance, it's probably going to end up on the internet or something. Like, there's no, is there really any? Sometimes there's not. Sometimes sometimes we're doing, like, you know, we're doing an office visit to a media company or, you know, I've done little performances for my publisher or, you know, random little acoustic things where it's like, hey, come do two, three songs for our happy hour on a Friday or whatever. So, yeah, there is something very exciting about that level of that scope. And and, Mm -hmm. and the prep for it was different, too, because, you know, visually we want to make it more interesting. We want to make it, like, fit a big space. So, okay, great, bassist, you know the music, but, like, now we need to rehearse your choreo. Like, you need to Mm -hmm. to move here, and our arms are all going to go here, and at this point we're all going to turn to the left. When you're kind of putting a band together for a tour, is that an expectation that there's going to be a little bit of dance in there? Yeah, I think because like hiring a bassist and then hiring a bassist who can kind of sort of dance are two different things. They are two different things, and I think when I, you know, like I said, like most of the people that I work with at this point are people that I've worked with for years. Yeah. So it's not none of the musicians in my band are like 
guns for hire, so to speak. They're all friends of mine and collaborators, people I've worked with in various contexts, in some cases, most cases for many years. So they know kind of what they're signing up for. You know, there, there have been cases where I need a sub or I need someone for a certain gig and my regular people aren't available. And the expectation is like, hey... It is music, but depending on the gig and what it is, we're also going to be moving a little bit. I might need you to sing a little bit. Mm -hmm. I might need you to wear this weird thing. <laughs> I just am going to need you to be open for anything I can kind of throw at you at any point. Yeah, and they're, and they're people, they're, they're down. Sure. Does it feel like a, a proper band from that standpoint, from the standpoint of essentially more or less playing with the, the same group of people? That's a good question, and it's an evolving dynamic. The project is my name, and I, I think it, it doesn't feel like a proper band. At the end of the day, mm -hmm. like... What's the difference? I mean, at the end of the day, everyone's getting paid except me. I'm getting paid in exposure. You know what yeah. I mean? But everyone else is walking home with a check. I probably lost money. So so that's sort of like the pragmatic answer. But is there like creatively a, a difference? Well, yeah. I think that my band is collaborative, especially on this tour that we went on. Because, well, at Radio City, we had a big band. We had seven people. But then mm. the other dates, it was just four people, me mm -hmm. plus three. And it's very collaborative. And, and I'm definitely trying to draw on everyone's strengths. Like, I went on tour... I brought one of my background singers who's a great friend of mine and an amazing artist herself named Cola Ray. And because she was the only background singer on the tour, she kind of became almost more like a hype woman on the tour. And she, Cola's an incredible front woman herself, songwriter, artist, uh, amazing. She's like your Flava Flav? Uh, sure, I guess. <laughs> so she was very featured in the show in a way... And she kind of brought her own thing. And, and, and Brian, who was drumming, is a jazz drummer. And he mm. brought his own thing. And Jorn, who was on keys, brought his own thing. So, so there is collaborative. And I want to really, I want to really draw on people's strengths mm -hmm. so that it feels like everyone's being featured in a way that is the, they're giving the best that they can give. But at the end of the day, I'm the executive director of the project. So, and I think people understand that. And it, and it, and it is a, it's a sensitive dynamic. But it, but everyone is down and, and open to it on the road this time it was interesting because there were only four of us so and especially cola who is so um dynamic and just she's a cola's an absolute superstar mm. herself so at these meet and greets people would like be excited to meet me but i also really wanted to meet cola yeah. you know what i mean because she's a superstar i love that and i'm so happy to be able to give other people a platform through my platform so that's a dynamic that i'm very happy to be a part of how important is the um is the music that you're touring on with regards to like who the group of people that you're picking it sounds like you've got a number of people you work with but a pretty large pool are you at a point where depending on the style of an album the vibe of an album you're sort of using that to figure out the pieces of the band you know you've got you've got this essentially this jazz drummer you know is was that he's not really playing jazz though okay. my music's not jazz yeah so you, you, you pick somebody who can, like, play whatever you need I to like play. I like jazz musicians. Most of yeah. the people that are in my band have a background in jazz because there's flexibility, there's adaptability, there's improvisation. Mm -hmm. They have really good ears. They they're you know they just know their shit, and I know that they're going to catch yeah. me, whatever I'm doing. But I'm not a jazz musician, and yeah. my project is not a jazz project. But it's more a matter of picking the, the, someone who's the most capable versus this is this person who plays this very specific style of music. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. It's, it's about – it definitely is about capability. I would say pending the, the type of setup I'm doing, that might affect who I'm asking. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I mentioned like the office performance where it's going to be like an acoustic thing. Maybe it's like me, two singers, maybe like cajon and acoustic guitar. The person that, I'm, that I asked for Cajon might not be the same person that I might ask if I'm doing a situation where it's like, hey, we want to do like a, a whole like electronic drum sure. pad situation, you know, because different people have different kind of skills. But overall, I feel like I have my main core group of musicians who, who first and foremost know my material 
and know my song. So, okay, hey, guys, we're going to do this song, but we're going to do it this way for this show. Okay, cool. We know how the song goes. We can have a quick rehearsal and, like, get it together in that vibe or that style. Yeah, and they know me, and they know kind of my vibe. They know that there's going to be movement. They know mm-hmm. that, you know, there's going to be theatrical elements to the show. There can be some major stylistic differences from night to night, from show to show, depending on where you're playing. Night to night, not so much. Like on the tour, the sure. show was the same every night because yeah. we knew we were playing these huge venues and like – Yeah. It also know. has to be, right? I mean also yeah. you're planning a 20 20- exactly. date tour. You can't like do something completely different every single night. Exactly. But like, you know, for a different type of performance though where it's like we're going to an office or we're playing a small club or we're playing a small party or – we're playing a gig, but it's like in a hundred person room. Okay, great. Maybe mm-hmm. let's strip it down. Maybe let's not even have tracks. Maybe let's just do acoustic. Maybe let's make it really earthy. And you know, that decision is uh, a, a creative one as well as a pragmatic one. Like I have a gig in a, next week, actually in a much smaller room. And I was thinking about doing like this smaller acoustic cajon type thing. And the people that I would, my guitarist who knows all my songs just moved to LA. He's not going to be in town. Mm-hmm. So I was like, whatever. I don't want to teach a new guitarist all my songs, so let's just do this other show that's kind of ready to go. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like once you have like a, a configuration that you know is going to work, okay, great. And then and then we're going to, you know, especially Cole and I who are performing more in the front, we're then going to read that room and we're not going to be as grandiose and mm-hmm. big in a room of 120 as I would be in a 5,000-person room. And that's reading the room, you know? Was that sort of showmanship, has that been a part of the music from the beginning for you? Yeah, it has somehow. I just think that I, a big part of my expression is my movement and like the way my body moves and like the story that that I tell through the way I move my body mm-hmm. with the words I'm saying, with the way I'm singing. It's all one, you know? If I say, I just think that there's so much context to to a certain lyric or mm-hmm. a certain story based on what color the background is, how I'm singing it, if I'm in falsetto or chest voice, if I'm moving really mm-hmm. like femme or if I'm acting like a tough guy. You know what I mean? Like all those <laughs> it's things. It's a shame this isn't on video because we're getting some really good movement yeah, in here. exactly. So come to the show. <laughs> yeah. So those things all for me give context and they're such a part of the show. So yes, movement has always been a part. Even when I was in college and I had bands and stuff, we would move and have choreo and I, you know, I reference. People like Prince, who in his show would have, you know, his whole sure. his whole horn section, who were not dancers. Yeah. They were horn players. But he was like, bitch, y'all going to two-step. Like, we're yeah. going to all two-step together, and it's going to look dope because we're all going to do it confidently, and we're going to move together, you know? Or, um, you know, Janelle Monet or Bruno Mars or, or you know, Lady Gaga, these people that, that really are using theatrical elements to their live performance as a big piece of... David Bowie, you know what I'm Prince is an interesting example because he was always kind of known as a bit of being a bit of a control freak. Do you feel like there needs to be that element for you to be the leader of a band? Ooh. <laughs> I am really that's that's a question that I'm asking myself a yeah. lot these days about control in a lot of areas in my life, in my career and also not my career. But definitely within my career, that is a question that I'm asking a lot. I think historically I'm a control freak. I think I'm trying to loosen that, but then it's also finding the balance and not loosening too much. Why Why are you trying to loosen it? I think that there are ways for things to be dope. I think dope is dope. Yeah. I think that one, 
I have a history sometimes of being over controlling. So it's like I'm not I'm not realizing that a thing is already dope, and I should just let it be done and move on to the next thing. Yeah, because you're talking about being a perfectionist. Yeah, which I think is the result of a control, but not just a perfectionist. It's recognizing that this actually is perfect. This actually is great. This actually already is good. It may not be exactly how I had envisioned mm. it, but it already it hits the mark. You've got a very specific idea in your head of the way you want something to be. When it births into the real world, it's not exactly like that. That's a hang-up or has been a hang-up for you. And knowing how much to, to, to force, to yeah. continue to push, to mold it, to, that, to be that thing that I want it to be versus how much to say, you know what? Actually, this isn't what I wanted it to be, but it's a vibe. Mm-hmm. Moving on. And because, like you said, you're surrounding yourself with really talented people. So maybe part of being a band leader is learning how to trust people. 100%. And it's the same thing in the studio with a producer or with a songwriter. It's the same thing if I'm any kind of collaboration. It's if I'm, you know, uh, working on an outfit with a stylist and getting a look right, getting a photo right, getting a makeup look right. Mm. Or even by myself, you know, I'm, I'm... this month, I'm actually really trying to like do more writing by myself and yeah. just producing by myself in my apartment, and just really reconnect with like my own solo musical creations, um, which I haven't done as much of in the last year and a half. Just allowing it to just be what it's going to be, you know what I mean? And is this dope? Okay, cool. Let's finish. Okay, cool. The piano part is dope. The photography example is is a, is a good one because you know it's like one thing to be controlling in your music it's another thing to be like the guy who walks into the photo studio and is like telling other people how to do their job exactly that's when it becomes an issue but at the end of the day my name is as you pointed out it's my name on the thing you know it's 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 my it's i have a product that i'm managing that i want to deliver a certain story to my fans and the the product is you well that's another interesting question um, that I'm trying to work out. Because you're talking through. about not just music, you're talking about sort of the image, you know, the way you look on photos, yeah. every aspect of, you know. The, the product is a version of myself yeah. that I'm turning into a product. But I have been, I used to say the product was me, mm. but my theory around my art has changed a lot and I'm actually working a lot more now to really make a division between Michael the human and Michael the artist. And I used to, I used to want to think and did think that those were the same thing and I had this idea where I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to tell you everything. I'm an open book. Here's my whole life. Here's my whole story. I'm an artist, and my story is yours, and I'm to share. And now I'm more interested in life. First of all, people don't want my fucking everything. They don't need that. Second of all, it's actually more economically strategic for hmm. me to, like, curate more of a product for me to really – and it's not that I'm being inauthentic or that I'm lying or I'm not being myself. It's that I'm choosing what pieces of myself am I putting on this capitalistic platform because ultimately I'm trying to sell shit. You know what I mean? Hmm. And I am an artist and I am an activist and I am a thinker and I am a, a lover and a facilitator of conversation and, a, and, a, and an advocate for equality and all those things are truly who I am. And also, I want to make money from this. And I'm trying to, like, make my career happen and do this for the next 40 years. And so these are big questions that I I don't have the answers to, but I think about a lot in terms of how we find the balance of, you know, the human versus the artist versus the product versus the fact. All of this within the context of capitalism, of selling. You know, we're all selling product. Do you feel like you were giving up too much of yourself from the standpoint of just, like, maybe, you know, surrendering a certain amount of privacy? Ooh. Yes. People tend to feel entitled when they feel like you're giving yourself to them. My my blessing and curse, one of them, is that I really am an open book. I have very open ideas of privacy. Mm. I get into this with my dad a lot because he's a very private person. 
And he said, I can't believe you said this in an interview. I can't believe you talked to your friends about this. I can't believe you stuff about, about you or this. stuff about him. About me. Okay. I, would, I wouldn't disrespect yeah. his privacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's very little that I wouldn't say right now. There's very few questions that I'd be like, I can't believe you asked me that. You, asked <laughs> sure. me. you could ask me about my sex life. You yeah. could ask me about my health. You could ask me about my psychotherapy. Like, we could turn this into a psychoanalysis. I'll tell I'm you about it. working on it. Like I'll go there, you know what I mean? Like I'm not yeah. I'm not afraid and I'm not ashamed of that, which I think at once is awesome because it allows me to really express. And on the other hand, it's a challenge because it makes it tougher for me to curate the pieces of myself yeah. that I want to share. Was your sexuality was that one of the lines that your dad was kind of afraid of you crossing? I don't I don't want to use the word afraid, um but he felt like you were being too Well, I'll put it like this. Open. It's like I don't think he feels like and I don't want to make this even about him sure. too much, but or just the people in your life. Yeah, I think like, you know, I did have a conversation. I remember early on with my dad, you know, my first EP is called When I Get It Right. And there's two references on that EP, explicit lyrical references to sucking dick. And it's like, I so did you, have... you kind of came right out of the gate. Yeah. And I did have people say to me, you know, well, why do you have to say sucking yeah. dick? Da, 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 da. And I'm like, well, I want to. Where You know. Yeah. And for me... There is shock value, sure. which I do like, but that is just like that's how I also talk. That's, that's also like, like, have you ever heard a hip hop song before? Well, thank like, you. But this... they all talk about eating pussies. So I know, but it's just homophobia like, yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. So you know, for me, I'm just like whatever. I'll just say that. But now I'm at a point where it's like me talking about sucking dick. I would do that with my friends, but I don't. I don't feel the same need yeah. to say that in a song anymore. Partially because I know that there are certain people who I who I want my message to reach that mm-hmm. might be turned off by that. And partially because it's like, I don't know. I think originally I had this thing where I was like, you know, I was like, well, I'm gay and I want to let everybody know. And now it's more like I'm me and I think you should be you. So my message has evolved a little bit through that as I've become more comfortable with who I am as a human. I feel less the need to shove my humanity into other people's throats with my art. And now it's like a more zoomed out thing where it's like, hey, I'm me and you should be you. Yeah, and we're all different, and that's beautiful. So. Does being like open, on, lyrically open on a record like that, does that still feel like a countercultural act in 2019? I mean, yes and no. Like in the context of queer artists in Brooklyn, no. Sure. And there's people who do yeah. a lot more explicit shit than I do. Yeah. But in the context of Donald Trump as president, and you know, we still live in a really conservative time in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Like, yeah, that is radical. Me just talking, me just being gay is radical. You know, and I'm friends with. This is another dynamic that I'm trying to figure out and think about a lot is that I am friends with a lot of super radical people in New York mm-hmm. who are non-binary and trans and POC and leaders of those communities and really on the on the on the on the progressive edge of equality and rights and self-expression and I'm here for all those things and also I know that there are a lot of there are a lot a lot of people in the country who are never even going to tune into those friends of mine because they're racist or they're homophobic or they're not going to be able to access that. And I know the fact that I appear as a man and that I'm white. I know that that grants me access to certain audiences. Mm-hmm. So there's this whole thing where it's like, well, where how much do I want to meet my audience? You know what I mean? Because there's a lot of shit that I could say. You know what I mean? But it's also about meeting them and using the privilege of my body to not scare folks away. Is that part of the editing process? I mean, are you are you putting things down on paper and just maybe, you know, taking a second look at them and just being like, hey, maybe this isn't a great thing to have on record or maybe this won't get played on the radio? Well, here or... I am talking about on your podcast. Sure. So. <laughs> but, but, you know, obviously somebody who is like going to download and listen to a 45-minute 
podcast conversation with you is not necessarily more deep, and not the person who's going to you know just like listen to like a three minute pop song, right? That's where you can really sneak this subversive shit in, though, right? You're absolutely right. Yeah. And so, yes, there is a process of editing, and I don't have the answer right now because this is this is like I'm I'm you're dealing with I'm it in open, real time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm real time yeah. trying to figure out. And again, I'm I'm interfacing this question with the capitalism question, with sure. the product question, yeah. with the with the financial stability question. I'm on Medicaid. Let's get to the capitalist question, which is when you're recording a record, for example, and you know you're figuring out which songs to put on. Like, how important is it that these are things that have mass cultural appeal, have pop cultural appeal? How how, how do you weigh the sort of uh, pop sensibilities with just putting whatever you want to put on record. I got to just make what I want to make. Yeah. You know what I mean? I got to make what I want to make. And I think, I think I've spent, you know, so I go into the studio, I just make what I want to make, mm-hmm. but I would be naive and I would be lying to say that on a certain, at least subconscious level, that is not influenced by the feedback. I think I might get from my record label or the feedback I think I might get from a Spotify playlister. Yeah. Or what I think the average Spotify listener is going to think. Or I'm not I'm not like going and saying, you know, the extreme of that would be me going to my label and saying, hey, get me songs. Mm. Have have pop songwriters sure. give me songs. You know, it's Which a perfectly a legitimate it's thing. Totally that, a vibe. Yeah. And a lot of those songs are But great. that's not why you got in this. That's not why I got in this. Correct. So... You know, that balance is something I'm really trying to figure out. But ultimately, especially 2020, I'm, I'm trying to get back to me. You referenced this earlier. You said, I think in the past like year, year and a half, you haven't really sat down and written I've been doing songs. a lot more co-writing. Okay. And I've been doing, you know, I've been touring a bit. I was in L.A. last year for like four months and I was writing a bunch with um, – a lot of different writers and producers, which is mm-hmm. great, and I love I love working with other writers and stuff. Is that kind of your record label pushing you a little bit to be, get out there? No, I no. think no. They're happy for me to create however I want to create. I think I was curious mm. to to do more co writing and more collaborating because I thought it might actually yield some more mar- more. Some some stuff that has more massive yeah. appeal. You you felt that you had been pretty insular up till that point. Yeah, I think a lot of New York artists. I think that's one of the big differences between New York and yeah. LA is that in New York, a lot of the artists we just like work in our rooms by ourselves. We make a thing. In LA, there's this whole culture of yeah. collaboration and co-writing and and all that, which I love. That's the thing about New York. You know, this cause I've, I've been here for like God, close to 15 years at this point, and it's the weird thing of living in the most populous city in the United States and just feeling completely alone all the time, being surrounded by people and somehow being just totally solitary. I think life is lonely, period. I think yeah. that's not true to just New York. Yeah. It does seem like exacerbated by New York, though, doesn't it? I think it, I think it has a specific New York flavor, but yeah. like, I don't know. I think people are lonely in LA. I think, I think life is lonely. Sure. And not not to be like so dark about it, but I think we have to surround, you know, I go back and forth on this too. Like, should we, oh, you have to be good at being by yourself. Sure. Or should humans just not be by themselves? I don't know. A little bit of both. Probably a little bit of both. That's always, yeah. You know, you need need to recharge sometimes. You can't be around people all the time. Right. You definitely need alone yeah. time. Did you find that the process of collaborating with other people did kind of open up your songwriting? Totally. Yeah. Yielded great results. Again, control, relinquishing control mm-hmm. and really allowing people who aren't me to see me and help me clean up and organize my ideas and simplify some of my ideas. I'm 
I can be a little heady. I can be a little wordy, hmm. a little bit too brainy sometimes. And I, I think I can't. I think no one can really see themselves. And so I think having people around you that are able to see, like, okay, cool, I see what you're trying to say here. How about we say it like this, or how about we take that big word out? Why is brainy a bad thing in this context? It can just it it can it can be harder for people to understand. Yeah. Passive listeners, they don't want to. Yeah, they don't want to feel like they're studying for the SAT when they're listening sure. to a pop song. I've had songs in my life where I'm just like, ah, I really like the song, and I go back and like, oh, I never really understood what this person was saying. And if it connects with you musically, sometimes that's almost a moot point, right? One hundred percent. Yeah, and I think more and more that's what matters to people is that you know people are listening on playlists on Spotify and they are not tuned into the lyrics and I'm yeah. reading along with genius and analyzing the words. They're at work, they're at home, they're going out, they're walking the dog, they're at the gym, whatever. And does the song feel good? Does the song make them yeah. feel the way they want to feel? Does it allow them to like live in their feels? Yes or no? And and that is, I think, the thing that makes them want to save it and play it again and share it with a friend. And then maybe the second or third or fourth listen, now they're actually digging into the lyrics. That's a good point. And one of the ways in which Spotify, and I, I don't think necessarily for the better in fact probably not has changed my relationship with music is you know when i used to go to the record store and this is like my old man rant when i used to go to the record store and you know spend 17 15 bucks on a cd you're you're investing in it right you're definitely going to sit down you're going to give it however many listens and really try to connect with the music when something is just ethereal on spotify and it's part of a playlist you're a lot more likely to skip over it and not give it the time. So you do need to you need to connect with people right out of the gate, especially when you're a new-ish artist. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. No major comment on, <laughs> on that, yeah. but yes, major streaming platforms yeah. have made it really hard for new artists to connect with music, with fans. They're fed. Most yeah. people don't go to the record store. They don't even go to iTunes anymore with an intent to listen to something. They're just passively listening mm. to what these companies have decided is going to make them the most money. So they put on the playlist and feed it to them. It's called a feed yeah. for a reason because we're being fed stuff. To not be super pessimistic about it. The flip side is that, you know, you, you write a song, have a lyric about sucking dick in it, and it can get to like, you know, some like gay teenager in Oklahoma who, you know, 10, 20 years ago like you definitely would have heard that song on the radio. Right. You're able to connect with people through technology in a way you couldn't have before. 100%. And I think that's the, that's also one of the upsides of social media in general, which also has obviously lots of downsides and sure. is fucked. But yeah, I think like visibility. Uh, visibility mm -hmm. for me is the number one thing on social media because you can be a closeted whatever queer person in Ohio or whatever and you might not be out and you might have to go to church every Sunday and deal with a pastor that's like super homophobic or whatever. But you're on Instagram at night after everyone goes to bed and you're seeing this mm. whole world that you know exists because you're able to at least see it. Whereas 10, 15 years ago, you didn't even know it existed because, well, maybe 50, you know, maybe on Facebook a little bit. But now with Instagram and yeah. everything, it's even more, you know, uh, omnipresent. If you want to find it, you can connect. And that is, I think, a beautiful thing about social media. Is that that 24-7 kind of openness of social media artists over sharing? Is that one of the things that's made you kind of second guess how much you're putting out there? 100%. Yeah. yeah. Again, like – it's such a balance because social media, the expectation on a certain level is like, oh, we want to know, we, we want you to be authentic. We want to know who you really are. Mm -hmm. And it's like, 
I'm a different person every second. I don't really believe in the concept of authenticity because I, it's it's kind of this bullshit thing. Like the the true you, the pure you, the real you. Should yeah. Just just be honest, and they'll love it. But like you said, you you mentioned like like Bowie and Prince before, and like if they had been on Twitter all the time talking Ooh. about what they were eating every day, they wouldn't have had the same mystique. One hundred percent, exactly. And I think you know, I first of all, I think that there's a there is a level at which mystique is over. I think there's a level at which that kind of artist just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Like the the hysteria around the mystique. I mean, like you look at someone like Lizzo, who I think is like, you know, one of the big buzzing artists of today. She's massive. I love her. I love her shit. She's very transparent. Yeah. And she has the moments on her thing where she's sad about this and that. And, you know, uh, there is still a level of curation. And, she's, yeah. you know, I'm sure there's stuff that that she's not putting on her Instagram. Because as you're coming up. You know, you're using social media as a platform. So you're putting yourself out there from the beginning. Right. There's no way to sort of come up as a mystery artist. Did you get the name? That's him. Yeah. Orville Peck. Oh, yeah. I've heard of that. Yeah. 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 He wears like a cowboy hat and a mask. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, He's he's super interesting. But yeah. And we love it because he's masked. And who is he really? Yeah. Exactly. You know, and I don't, that's also, that's not, I I really want to be, I want to be open. Let's get back to the um, kind of the Venn diagram. Okay. the, the, The two U's, right? The um, artist and human. The artist and human. You like okay. what, what are the two things on either side? I'm gonna of have to go home and smoke some weed after this. <laughs> Say it again. What, what's different about person well, you example, and artist you? Sure, person me wakes up and puts on sweatpants and a mm-hmm. fucking white tee and is li- and is in my apartment making oatmeal and scrambled okay. eggs. So casual. Casual. Yeah. Unbothered. Chilling. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm going to the gym. I mean, you're, not, you're not taking Instagram selfies at the gym. Not not person you. Right. I because mean – Instagram selfies is curated for sure. Yeah, Insta- I am taking Instagram selfies okay. at the gym and that's artist me. That's artist that's, that's me working. Yeah, yeah. That's me knowing that if I look hot at the gym, yeah. that's a thing that people are going to be engaged with. And that's not fake. Yeah. That's not me being inauthentic. That's really me sharing that moment, knowing the capitalistic utility of that moment – and doing it. What's interesting about it is that you're 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 kind of like never not crossing the streams. In the same way that that as an artist, you have to be, sort of be open to the possibility of creative inspiration. You have to also have to with social media be open to the possibility of like, oh, you know, I'm going to kind of work right now. That I'm going to like, you know, curate this image of me on social media. And, you know, I have some artist friends that have had found a lot of success with Instagrams, like a fake Instagram, because mm-hmm. it allows them to really separate and make more easily because I, yeah. I have moments where I do I do talk to my Instagram and I'll and I'll make like a selfie video of me ranting about whatever and I'll say I can't post this this isn't this is an artist Michael and I, I think I want to make a Instagram in 2020 because what's an what's an example of a rant that like is not artist you me being on the subway annoyed about some bitch that was fucking in the way or whatever okay day-to-day shit yeah like day-to-day yeah. like we just don't need that but sometimes if it's like really funny or over the top yeah. or like really shows my personality in a way that, like, is marketable, then, like, great. But sometimes it's just, like, "Mm, I don't need fans to see this. Like, this is, like, for my friends. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and this is an ongoing – this is, like like you said, real time. Like, these are the questions that I really sit with a lot, probably too much. Mm -hmm. And so when I say I'm trying to also just get back to me, I'm also trying to – I'm trying to think about these questions, but I'm also trying to, like, put these questions down and just make my shit – and put out what I want to put out and not overthink. Because I think I've spent a lot of time in the last two years like overthinking these exact questions. Yeah. Was there a fear of ever being 
political, too political on record? Was there ever a fear of alienating people by being too political on a record? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't want to say fear. There's an awareness yeah. of marketability. There's an awareness that if I am in a dress, I mean, the marketing guy at the, at the label said this to me. I'll never forget it. After my first album, my first EP. They were super supportive. The label mm -hmm. said, yeah, we'll do what you want to do. And my first project had me in a dress and I had long hair. And I was in this floor-length dress with a top knot. Just the act of being gender nonconforming is a political act. 100%. Yeah. And yeah, he said to me, look, if you want this to be the cover, that's fine. We'll support it. But just so you know, there are people who will see this cover on iTunes who might love your music mm -hmm. who will not even click on it because it's a man in a dress. It's crazy. Bowie was wearing a dress on on his album cover you know, 40 years ago and yeah. it's still, it's still a problem. It's insane. Right. Yeah. And at the same time, it's not a problem. It's 2020 yeah. and everyone's in a dress and general conforming that cause I'm so, in, I'm so engaged with yeah. the community of people who celebrate that. But honestly, I think also being on this tour through the Midwest and I was just in Florida visiting a friend over the weekend in Tampa. Yeah. I am also checked into the fact that like, there is still a grand old hetero patriarchy, white, supremacist when you're talking about personal safety that's a different conversation right when you're well, walking down the street in a dress and maybe it's a related conversation for sure sure yeah. but certainly that's going to make you more cautious when you're talking about your own personal safety yes. and i think for the most part you know i'm privileged in that i mean sometimes i do present much more visibly gender non-conforming mm -hmm. um sometimes you know sometimes i don't depending on the context you know i mean I was at a bar in Tampa, and I had this little same pink eyeliner on. And I should say it's subtle. It's subtle. Yeah. And, I, and in New York on the train, it's, yeah, it's yeah. nothing. Right, right now, I look yeah. very, I would say, not yeah. not gender nonconforming. But I wore something just like this with this <laughs> at this bar in Tampa, and I was very aware of my, yeah. of my body and myself yeah. and the way I was moving and the, and the silhouette that my clothes were giving because it was like – a different vibe than any space that I'm used to in New York. It's good to step out of your bubble, though. I mean, like that—that's the one one of very few upsides of the you know current presidency is that like I think a lot of people who were unaware that these things were still issues, it, it very much came to the forefront. Yeah, I think that group of people you're talking about is liberal white people, though. Yeah. I think like you know everyone, yeah, like, people Pe who are actually pe people living shit. in like metropolitan areas, right? You know, assume that a lot. Of, you know, assume that like. Barack Obama being president, like we no longer had to, right. to deal with these things anymore. And and a lot of that has since come crashing down. Yeah. But I think like my point is that I think, you know, yeah. people who are visibly gender nonconforming, sure. people of color in many communities, like they knew that Barack Obama being president yeah, wasn't, yeah. you know, the be all. I was, I'm someone who, who was shocked. Like, I think I am that liberal white person who mm -hmm. was who didn't? Who who did live in a bubble? Who or who you knew it was bad, but you just didn't know how bad it still correct, was. Correct. Be yeah. Because because of so much about my so many of the privileges that I have protect mm -hmm. me from actually having to deal with and really really face how bad it is. So I think the last few years have been a, definitely a big learning lesson for me as well. Kind of increasingly, I'm I'm kind of grappling with the question of whether being non political is in itself a political act. You know, and, and right now in this day and age, given like everything that's happening right now is not actively engaging in these issues, a political act in and of itself. Well, it makes me think of two things. One, it makes me think of strategy, like, you know, in terms of what I was saying about not, you know, I had a 30 minute set on this tour opening for AJR. Mm -hmm. 
in these Midwestern audiences. With people who had come there to see the headlining act. Correct. Mind you, their audiences were queerer than I thought they would be. But it was still, like, mostly white, mostly younger Midwestern audiences. How do you gauge that, like, just people coming up to you afterwards? and yeah, you engage- look out. You just okay. have to get <laughs> um, I only had a 30-minute set. So, you know, I didn't have time to do a whole, you know, protest piece the way I might in a New York headliner show. But there is this balance of what do I want to say? How important is it to me? What can I say that will engage people? Mm-hmm. At what point will me saying some political shit turn people off? At what point will it, will people say, why can't he just yeah, play, music and play music and, and yeah. not be political? Which is such a ridiculous question yeah. because music pure, is political, period. But people don't know that. They don't, they don't get that. So you don't walk up the mic and go, fuck Donald Trump? I don't go up to – not on this tour. Okay. <laughs> and, I, and that was a conscious decision yeah. to not say fuck Donald Trump on the tour. That was a, that was a decision. However, I did – there was a moment before my – I have a song called I Got You – that is like very much, I got you, you got me, let's love each other, let's make it through together, whatever. And the lyrics are, are poignant, like, are mm. pointed, you know, even if they build the wall, like, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I had, I gave a little speech in the intro of that. That was kind of like the political moment where I specifically, I, you know, I, I, I said, you know, whether you're cis or you're trans or whether you are born here or you're born in another country, you know, uh, no matter what you look like, who you love, you should be able to... You yeah, know, have dignity, be yourself. That was the and I said that on the mic every, every and and that was that was the moment that was the thirty second moment in my thirty minute set that I decided strategically was going to be the part where I really talk about pointedly about about politics. Mind you, I have another song called "Are You Mad That I'm Gay." Like my whole shit is political. Sure, kind of. like I'm I'm a dude in makeup on stage yeah. in in Oklahoma, so like it's already kind of a vibe. But versus my New York show, I'm having like a whole like two minutes of silence for the black people that have been murdered by police mm-hmm. this year. You know what I mean? So like I'm not doing that in Oklahoma. Um, what does it say about us as a society that saying everyone should be able to love who they want is a political message? It says Donald Trump is president. We're yeah. fucked. It's really bad. Like it's really bad yeah. right now. So your question though is such a good one. Is like is being non-political – A political act. A political act. And And what I would say is there are – Many strategies that can contribute to justice. And I think the road to justice is paved with inconsistency and paved with difficult choices. And there's not one route to justice. And and, and the things that any one individual and any one body can do to move us toward justice might look different. For me, it might be me doing shaking my left hand to move towards justice. Mm -hmm. For you, it might be shaking your right hand. And you can say to me, well, you should shake your right hand too. And I can say, actually, no, because my strategy to move us towards justice, I, I got to do this thing first. So I think strategy requires sacrifice. Yeah. And that's been a big thing that I've been trying to swallow the last couple of years. What's that Parliament album? Oh, is it Free Your Mind and Your Ass Will Follow? Mm. There's a good takeaway message there. That, you know, the inverse of that being. Meaning like if you free your mind, you're going to be able to like re- release your butthole and have anal sex. Yeah. Which yeah. Where a lot or of dance. You know, either, you know. See that? I wouldn't say on stage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to get one, one could be a gateway drug to the other, but the inverse of that being like, you know, the it's a good way to get to people who you might not get to otherwise is just give them, get, giving them something they can dance to. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You definitely feel that your work has become more political under Trump, and that you've kind of leaned into a lot of these ideas that you might not have so strongly otherwise. 
I'm interested in mu- in music and art that is political that reflects the times. You okay. know, I think. Yeah, I'm interested in music that is political that 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 has the intention of moving us towards justice, of reflecting the times, mm-hmm. of being, of observing what what is happening in history. And what I'm learning is that that can look a lot of different ways, and that could look like a love song, and a, mm-hmm. or it could look like a dance party. You know what I mean? I think I used to be more militant and have a, a smaller minded view about it, where I said. Well, you're not being explicitly political, so yeah. you're you're just contributing to the problem. You weren't like Woody Guthrie on stage. Right. Yeah. And and so therefore you're part of the problem. And now I'm more open to what I said, which is just that like individual strategies can look mm-hmm. different for different people and and be part of a greater good for different people. Uh, you know, you mentioned the wall example before and you know it's it's kind of it's a testament to the power of metaphor. In that, I think traditionally one of the problems with a lot of protest music is not political music generally, but protest music specifically is that it tends to date itself. If you're talking about Trump in a song, you know, or, you know, some bill that passed or naming names, then you're very much putting it in place and time. But if you're dealing with some kind of broader issues, it's perhaps something that's got a longer shelf life. Yeah, I think – yeah, I hear you. Are you you're not necessarily worrying how people are going to engage with this, you know, 20 years from now? Nah. No. I I'm going to write a lot of songs between now and 20 years yeah. from now. That'll be, you know, relevant or whatever. And I I don't necessarily have a I had a songwriting teacher in college who used to say, "Oh, don't make don't make specific references to the yeah. time because it I, I don't know that I agree with that. I feel like that doesn't necessarily make it a, a less strong song. Like I feel like it can still be interesting. It can still mm-hmm. Be historical, and then in twenty years, it's like, oh yeah, Instagram. <laughs> it's oh, like yeah. it's like we didn't start the fire, right? <laughs> exactly. Like nostalgia's, you know, nostalgia's got its own strength, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. At the same time, yes, there is a, 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 a uh, an art to crafting a song that is timeless. <laughs> 